we spent about two years trying to decide on a title. And we had all sorts of suggestions. And my wife and I would look at each other and say, hmm. And we would ask friends and, and nothing seemed to be magical, you know. And then one night we were going over some documents and she said, you know, remember Psalm 27? And I said, you mean the excerpts that you gave me that I kept in my briefcase for almost five years <laughs> and I used to take it to the office every day and we pulled it out looked at it and said wait a minute whom shall I fear what do you think and she said yes coming up on the Janice Adams show author of the new book whom shall I fear Dr. Ewart Brown former premier of Bermuda Hi, I'm Janice Adams. Welcome to the show. In these hyper-political times, what can we learn from other countries and their heads of state? What do their stories tell us about our own? My guest today is a medical doctor turned politician whose precipitous rise elected him premier of Bermuda, Dr. Ewart Brown. He has a new book out, Whom Shall I Fear? Dr. Brown, whom shall I fear? A provocative, defiant title. Who and what indeed inspired that title? Well, I have to tell you that it was right in front of us all the time. We, we spent about two years trying to decide on a title. And we had all sorts of suggestions. And my wife and I would look at each other and say, hmm. And we would ask friends and, and nothing seemed to be magical, you know. And then one night we were going over some documents and she said, you know, remember Psalm 27? And I said, you mean the excerpts that you gave me that I kept in my briefcase for almost five years? <laughs> and I used to take it to the office every day. And she said, yes. Uh, and we looked, pulled it out, looked at it and said, wait a minute, whom shall I fear? What do you think? And she said, yes. yes. So we said, okay, let's not leave it up to us. So let's take it and ask some other friends and what have you. And um, everybody to a person felt that that was an appropriate, uh, appropriate title. And the, the uh, quote of the psalm? The Lord is my light and my salvation. The Lord is my strength. Of whom shall I be afraid? Uh, then it goes on to say, even my enemies, when they came upon me to destroy me, they came to eat my flesh, but they stumbled and fell. Whom shall I fear? Our guest. Whom shall I fear? Our guest is Dr. Ewart Brown. And indeed, you as premier have had those occasions with people coming at you to destroy you. Um, Absolutely. In your personal life, you mm -hmm. have certainly experienced that. But there's a yeah. takeaway from that for all of us who have experienced something similar in ways large and small. Yes. What is that takeaway? Well, the takeaway for me has been that if you commit to something, beyond just talking about it, if you really, really mean it, then you must be prepared to pay the price. You must be prepared for all of those people who disagree with your position 
to express their opposition. And people do it in different ways. In politics, uh, there's a whole array of ways that people respond to, uh, to your statements or your policies or your decisions. When I opened this segment, you know, I began it with saying the relevance of talking to you as, you know, as a former head of state with some of the things the United States is going through right now politically. What does leadership mean to you? To me, leadership means a genuine desire and ability and a, uh, a vision to help people, to, to fix imbalance in mm. your particular environment, your society. And that governments are designed not necessarily for those who can do for themselves, but governments should, I think, take on the responsibility of providing for those who cannot provide for themselves. You come to your political career in Bermuda, but you begin as a doctor. And I'm hearing a certain commonality in that thread between doing for others who cannot do for themselves medically as well as politically. So let me start with how you became a doctor. Tell us about your growing up and where you begin your life. All right. Well, first of all, uh, I was born and raised in the early part of my life in Bermuda. Mm-hmm. And uh, once I got out of the fireman and cowboy stage, <laughs> uh, I the only thing I thought seriously about was, um, was medicine. Uh, later on, uh, I began to think of journalism as a possibility, but medicine was at the core. And I think what happened was I was admiring my uncle, uh, Bert McPhee, who was a family physician in Bermuda. And I just watched him more closely than he thought. And I watched how he related to people and how people related to him. And then he gave me a job cleaning his office at night. Mm-hmm. And I would walk around smelling the alcohol <laughs> and, 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 and sort of seeing myself in that environment. And, and I became serious about it and academically. Uh, that's what I plan to do. What was your area of specialty? I was in family practice. Mm, okay. And then from family practice, if you had three lessons that you learned that then prepared you to do something, you mentioned cowboy and Indian stage, I'll just say as Wild <laughs> West as politics. <laughs> Um, <laughs> what what would those three kind of lessons be? You mean lessons that I learned in yeah, medicine? That, 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 that prepared that, you for, yeah. for your next yeah. phase. Well, it's all people relations, you know. That, that's what politics is, people relations. And I learned a great deal in the practice of medicine mm-hmm. about people relations. Uh, I had some wonderful professors at Howard University. Oh, you you came here for school. You grew up in Bermuda, yes, but you came yes, here for yes. school. I went I went to Jamaica for high school. 
and uh, then to Howard. And when I was at Howard, it, it was such a rich environment. And the, there were many professors who left their marks on, on my brain because they would every now and then just drop what we called a nugget, you know, mm -hmm. just something that would stay with you for life. Uh, the, 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 the physician who told me, for example, if you want to know what's wrong with a patient, let him tell you. And uh, there was more to that than, than, than just those words. What he meant was, don't be in such a hurry to make a diagnosis. Let the patient lead you there. And after a few years of, of, of practicing, I understood exactly what he meant. And then the other one who told, told us that um, for the first few years, you practice the science of medicine. But after about seven or eight years, you begin to practice the art of medicine. Mm. Those things are very memorable. And, mm -hmm. uh, and I took most of those lessons with me into politics. And I never saw a great difference, by the way. Uh, you know, in medicine, you prescribe for a patient, and in politics, you prescribe for a country. Wow. So what was the diagnosis for Bermuda when you decided to go into politics? deeply affected by racism. And I suppose you could apply that all over the globe. And if you look at the consequences of years of racism, then you have more than enough on your plate because you will never fix those things in your lifetime, mm -hmm. but you can start. And so brick by brick, uh, we, we went to work. We went to work. Was there a pivotal moment that made you say that you would transition from medicine to to politics? And, and I should ask, did you transition? Did you do both? Did you decide you were going to, to change, make a clean break? How? Well, both of those things happened. Okay. Um, I, I overlapped medicine and politics uh, for about eight years. Mm -hmm. uh, when I first went into the cabinet, I would practice medicine because uh, 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 the ministerial job was not a full-time job. Okay. Uh, and I, even though it was full-time work, uh, mm -hmm. but I couldn't leave medicine so abruptly. You know, I, I loved practicing medicine. And um, so I decided to phase it out. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I went on a sort of a half schedule for about uh, five or six years. And then when I became premier, I knew at that point I had to sever the ties, uh, and I did that. But again, I, I didn't feel like it was that much of a transition in terms of the service aspect of what I was doing. Yeah, not much of a transition. But I wonder about the mindset, because as a doctor, I mean, you are in service to a patient, but I I wonder if you have more control as a doctor oh, than no you question. do in politics. There's no question. There, that, that is one of the differences in politics. And some people will tell you that's one of the reasons things take so long in politics, is that you have to work to develop a consensus because you can't, unless you're in a, an autocracy, uh -huh. you cannot just go ahead and, and dictate uh, the, the, the order of things. And so in, in uh, these um, attempts at democracy, we try to 
involve as many people as we can in the decision making. And that takes time. That takes time. Sometimes, sometimes it takes too much time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and by the time you finish democratizing the process, sometimes the solution has changed. <laughs> Here we are talking about Bermuda, and mm-hmm. we're, we're in the United States. The, the question that many people will say is, why, why are you talking about Bermuda? What relevance does it have to life in the United States? Where do you see the synergy? Well, you know, the, the, it's really a geographical difference and, and, and a minor cultural difference. Uh, I see us all as citizens of the world. I see countries mm-hmm. as countries of the world. Uh, most problems are at their root human problems. And in different geographical locations, they are expressed in different ways. I don't see any major differences. Uh, uh, Bermuda has 85% of its tourists coming from the United States. Uh, and, and there's movement between the two countries uh, all the time. So I don't pay a lot of attention to geography because I think it's used as an excuse. Uh, most of the problems, as I said, um, are human mm-hmm. at their root. And uh, the solutions uh, can be borrowed from different people. Sometimes the small country can show a, a large country uh, how to do something and vice versa. When we come back, more with our guest, Dr. Urit Brown. And, and I am intrigued by that last statement. In, in the United States, we are always trained to think of ourselves because we're a large country that we have something to teach a smaller country. But I'm thinking of the reverse being absolutely true and how coming from that point of view, from that reverse point of view and perspective may have led to a book that would be titled, Whom Shall I Fear? Pushing the Politics of Change. More with our guest, Dr. Hewitt Brown, former Premier of Bermuda, when we return. We're back here on the Janice Adams Show with our guest, Dr. Ewart Brown. He is the former premier of Bermuda from 2006 to 2010. He has a new book out, Whom Shall I Fear? Pushing the Politics of Change. Now, right before the break, I asked you about this issue that you raised about what we have to teach and learn from each other smaller country mm-hmm. to larger country. And I raised the issue of how that might lead one to get into trouble because you are not only giving a rational perspective, but that seems to sometimes be the thing people least want to hear. <laughs> That's true, but it, it does happen. I'll give you an example. When most Americans come to Bermuda, the first thing they say is, my, this place is so clean. <laughs> and, and, and you might think that that is a, a, a minor matter. But yes, Bermuda is a very clean country. How did it get that way? Why don't people litter up the place and make it uh, unattractive? You 
go to most places in the United States. Uh, they're not totally filthy, but they're not as clean as Bermuda. Mm-hmm. And so we can tell larger countries some of the things that we do to keep the country clean, spick and span. And they are? Well, first of all, you're taught as a child uh, at home and at school that if you if we have a dirty place, people won't come to visit. Now, that may seem trivial, but when your breakfast and lunch and dinner depend on people coming to visit your country, it's an important issue. So we grow up learning the connection between the cleanliness of the place and the success of the country. I hear that. And I hear the significance of that, especially to a a country that is rooted, I don't know to what percentage, but rooted to to a large extent in a tourist economy. But at the same point, for those of us on this side of the pond um, who are looking at a place like Bermuda, I'm also wondering about some other things because we go to places like Bermuda for the beaches. Mm-hmm. And I'm so tired of hearing about going to places for the beaches <laughs> and ignoring the other things that are there. Tell us about Bermuda, the heart and soul, the history of Bermuda, why it becomes a tourist, uh, a place of tourism. But tell us about your home. Well, I'll tell you, first of all, Bermuda is a very small place. Uh, in fact, we, we punch way beyond our size. Uh, it's a place that has evolved from being 100% dependent on tourism to one that now has a mixed economy where tourism and international business uh, intersect and uh, actually provide for the economy of the country. Uh, Bermuda has been in the tourism business for a long, long time, maybe almost 75 years. Uh, And I think that is the case because of its proximity to the United States. Bermuda is only 600 miles east of Cape Hatteras, North Carolina, Uh, a 90-minute plane ride from New York City. eight, seven, eight flights a day into Bermuda from the East Coast of the United States and from the UK. So Bermuda has established itself as a a sort of a a paradise, if you will, Mm -hmm. Uh, romantic, some people say. Uh, But it is essentially a place where you, you don't run into the the, the, the sounds and the, um, uh, the stress of what we call city life. Okay. Uh, the, the, the pace is slower. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the people, because we're small, we all know each other. And people say that we are the friendliest pe- people in the world. Um, <laughs> we are polite. You know, we speak to you whether you speak to us or not. Uh, we say good morning. And those things over the years have added up and, and, and made Bermuda uh, the place that it is today. 
You mentioned the UK when you were talking about the distance. Um, and it's the first time we're mentioning that. Bermuda was formerly colonized by the UK? Bermuda was and is colonized by the UK. That's one of the issues of contention. Uh, and uh, we look forward to the day when we enjoy uh, sovereignty mm -hmm. and no, no longer have that kind of relationship with the United Kingdom. What does sovereignty mean to Bermuda? Sovereignty means political uh, independence. Mm -hmm. It means making our own decisions. We do not depend on the UK for a dime. In fact, we pay uh, for the British governor who was in Bermuda. Uh, we pay for him and we pay a significant amount of money. Uh, so the British Is that government by gives choice? us... No, that's I didn't the whole think point. so. <laughs> it's not by choice. Yeah. And and so at some point we believe that we will mature mm -hmm. politically, we'll take the step and begin to make our decisions ourselves. So you are essentially in the position of paying for Britain to rule your waves. A absolutely. And how does that come to an end? What is the process now underway? Well, the process that has been in place for years uh, has to do with the Bermudian people deciding through a referendum mm -hmm. that they are in favor of political independence. Now, you might say, well, why don't you just organize it next week and do it? Yeah. Well, because there are forces inside and outside of Bermuda that don't want that to happen. Mm -hmm. There are people who are afraid that if the natives are allowed to make their own decisions, that they will become restless and destructive. But we don't pay much attention to that. However, those forces have dedicated themselves over the years to causing a level of fear. But whom shall I fear? Exactly. Uh, and so people, if you took a uh, uh, a poll in Bermuda today, you probably would still find the majority of the people uh, still not in favor of full independence, believe it or not. Why? Because they are afraid. They've been taught that if you cut the strings from the UK, you will somehow just float off the edge of the earth. Mm. Whom shall I fear? pushing the politics of change. I am going to assume, therefore, that one of the reasons for that title is the conversation that we're having now. You sound like a person who is in favor of changing that dynamic. There's what no it, question. What has it cost you? Well, it's cost me a, a fair amount of, of uh, personal and family discomfort, uh, pressure, uh, investigations uh, by the um, by the uh, police in Bermuda. Uh, so your own I'm police department has investigated you? Yes, is investigating. Uh, I've been under investigation now for nine years. You left office in 2010, so yes. the year after you left, the investigations yes. began. Why yes, the year after you leave? 
Well, because they, I think some of them felt that they hadn't done enough to punish me for some things that I had done. Mm -hmm. uh, the most important of which I believe was when I agree, agreed with the Obama administration to bring four young men from Guantanamo base in Cuba to Bermuda. These are young men who were Uyghurs, Chinese Muslims, who had not been charged with anything, but who had been kept imprisoned for seven years. And the Obama administration asked me if we could take four of them from uh, Guantanamo to Bermuda. And I agreed. And uh, our immigration minister said he saw no impediment. And we did it. But the key step was that we did not ask the British before we did it. And for that, I believe uh, they have decided to punish me for as long as possible. Indeed, when Haiti overthrew the French, mm -hmm. Haiti has been forced to pay the French reparations for French colonization of Haiti and the Haitians overthrowing that colonization. Right. And I've never quite understood how you can overthrow something and still have to pay. Well, when you have Europe and the United States in alliance, you know, <laughs> being masters mm -hmm. of the universe. Oh, yeah. I understand. I, I know you understand. Um, <laughs> or, no, I, neither one of us understands, but I know you know. I'll put mm -hmm. it that way. Mm -hmm. I know you I, know. Absolutely. Absolutely. So here we are talking about Bermuda as a smaller place teaching a larger place. But I also think of Bermuda's position in the world as emblematic of the African-American position here at home. Yes. The fear that many black people have had over the years of overthrowing the colonizers we're acting on it in different ways in this particular election, as though a whole new crop of people is seeing the danger. Well, you know, the lesson is the same. I believe that there's a universal lesson, you know, that one has to do for self. And one must gather the strength and the, the conviction uh, and the courage of conviction to, uh, to do what has to be done. And it's a big step for a lot of people. Uh, some people don't want to fight. They, 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 either they're tired or they would rather just not have uh, that kind of environment. And so they just go along to get along. Uh, and there are others who uh, plan to resist. That do-for-self metaphor, mantra, I'll put it that way, um, has a lot of ways of looking at it, especially at this time in the United States where there are many who I definitely would not agree with who consider this America first policy a doing for self. And I don't think that's what you mean. No. But no, I, I will, and I know it's not what you mean, but at the same point, I do wonder how then, you know, there are a lot of people who, who want to say, well, you know, the good people on both sides kind of, kind of um, um, 
an analogy. How then do people kind of figure out where the good side and the bad side of that kind of do for self versus self first, where it cuts? And how have you made the decision where it cuts? Well, you know, put yourself on an airplane. And when they give you the instructions about what you should do in the event that the oxygen falls from (laughs) the overhead uh, compartment, uh, one of the things they tell you is before you try to assist others, make sure that your oxygen mask is properly fitted. And the reason that is done is because that's the way you, you can be most helpful. Mm-hmm. So you, you have to have some stability with your own situation before you can reach out and give genuine and sustained assistance to other people. As a country, the United States uh, has done that. Uh, this country is not perfect, uh, but it has surely done, uh, made a great deal of progress in various areas of life. And when you look at the rest of the world, you don't always see it. And so there are people in the world who don't have food, who don't have medicine, who don't have access to education. And I believe, as I have said to, to many U.S. politicians, that the strength of America lies in its ability to help other countries. From treating the body to treating the body politic, our guest, Dr. Ewart Brown, author of the book, Whom Shall I Fear? More after the break. We're back here on the Janice Adams Show with our guest, Dr. Ewart Brown. Dr. Brown is a former medical doctor who became the premier of Bermuda. He was the premier from 2006 to 2010. And he has a new book out, Whom Shall I Fear? Pushing the Politics of Change. Now, I asked Dr. Brown if he would read to us from his book, and he surprised even me with the selection that he would like us to hear. (laughs) Please, Dr. Brown. Well, first of all, there's a little story before it. Uh, When I was five years old in Bermuda at that time, uh, kids used to write letters to Santa Claus asking for certain things. And I told my mother I wanted to write a letter to Santa Claus. And my mother was a school teacher. She was kind of strict about this kind of thing. She said, if you write a letter, to Santa Claus, I'm not having anything to do with it. I'm not going to correct any mistakes. It'll go as it is. Are you willing to do that? I said, yes. So I wrote a letter to Santa Claus. And to my surprise, uh, we opened the newspaper one day and there was the letter. And it said, dear Santa, I am writing this letter all by myself. And I am only five, O-N-N-Y. <laughs> I'm only five. If you have time, please bring me 
a pair of cowboy pants, P-A-N-S, and a gun. And don't forget to bring my sister a doll. <laughs> Dr. Hewitt Brown, <laughs> former premier of Bermuda. That's right. Uh, do for self and do for others. Okay, right. I love it. That is just <laughs> wonderful. So let's talk about your early life. From this upbringing in Bermuda, your family then moves on to Jamaica? No, no, the family stayed in Bermuda, but I was I was a, a troublemaker as a child. And I went from school to school. And finally, my parents said, you know, the best thing for you to do is to go to Jamaica and go to high school there and live with uh, your aunt, my father's sister. I wasn't quite ready, but I knew that it was probably my last chance. And so I went. When I got to Jamaica, I was totally impressed with the amount of, of dedication that they had to education, to education about Jamaica and Jamaicans, uh, and their deep interest in sports. And that was right up my alley. Mm. And because in Bermuda, the approach was if you were going to be an athlete, uh, then you couldn't do algebra, you know, that kind of thinking. Mm. And uh, I didn't like that. And I wanted to participate in all the sports I could. And in Jamaica, that became possible. And I started to thrive and eventually became a 400 meter runner and uh, actually was offered a scholarship to the University of Illinois as a 400 meter guy. Mm. So is that what you think turned you off or, or made you this, quote, troublemaker? In Well, I think that was part of it. But, but I think that deep down, there was just something, you know, we talk about this colonial model. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, it just was beginning to, to get to me, I believe. And I, and I was noticing it and I was rebelling against it. Uh, it wasn't getting me anywhere. Mm. Coming up against that wall. Yes. But then, then what made Jamaica so different? Because that is also a former, well, it's a, now a it's former a, colony, but yes. it came from the same well, root. Well, maybe it was because when I got there, the conversation was loud and clear. Jamaica was going to be an independent country. Okay. And I used to go out at night and, and listen to the politicians. And I was truly, truly mesmerized by the likes of Norman Manley and mm. uh, Alexander Bustamante and all these guys. Mm -hmm. They were committed to the idea of political independence. And they expressed it in so many vivid ways that I became a, I became a disciple of, of, of that kind of politics. And, um, and I wanted to learn more about it. And surely enough, in, in, six, in 1962, Jamaica became politically independent. You're referring to your own youthful turbulence, and I know you've had uh, experienced that, a similar tragedy now in your own family with your son. Yes. Is that something that you can tell us about and how you're working it through? Sure. 
Well, I mean, no, it's something that I talk about all the time. I have four sons, and two of them have been incarcerated. And when I was leaving the post as premier, I remember telling uh, people at a press conference that I had work to do and that mm -hmm. I wanted to go and uh, sort of dedicate myself to their uh, re-entry into society. And that's what I've been doing. Very difficult work, uh, but I had to do it. Mm -hmm. As a father, you have, to, you have to do it. As a father. Do you have any sense of, I don't want to get too personal on this, but do you have any sense mm -hmm. of what coming from a relatively and then privileged family let them go astray? Well, I believe there are a few things. One was my absence in their, the upbringing of these two. I mean, it was episodic at best because I was not married to their mothers. Mm. Uh, and so I know that that is a factor. I cannot reverse that history, but I figured that I could try to compensate. And one of them went on to become a physician before mm. he ran afoul of the law. Uh, the other one got in trouble uh, at a very young age. Um, but I've, I've, I've learned the importance of, uh, of the role of the father on a full-time basis. In the few minutes that we have left, um, I think you know where I'm going to head. Having You're just having said the role of a father on a full-time basis because obviously there's an analogy between the home and the extended home being one's homeland, one's nation. You are now retired, and as you say, you're going through some backlash harassment. But at the same point, there is something, there is a role that you are taking as father, as former father, to the nation. What are the things that you want to see for for your nation now? Well, what I want to see, and I'm, I'm having some enjoyment watching young men who came along during my administration, about six or seven of them actually worked directly with me, and they are now government ministers or members of parliament. Mm -hmm. I'm very proud of that, and I think that... Uh, you know, I'm going to enjoy it even more, watching them mature and make decisions. Uh, the, the the best thing that I would think that they could do would be to help to push the politics of change and that main change being uh, political independence for Bermuda. Dr. Ewart Brown, thank you so much for being our guest today on The Janice Adams Show. Um, I, it's just a privilege to speak with you and um, to learn from you. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity. And this update since taping the program. This past December, 10 years after his having left office, the government of Bermuda charged Dr. Brown with corruption. A suit filed against him in the United States has been dismissed by a U.S. federal judge. He still faces charges in Bermuda. Here's Dr. Brown's statement on the situation. 
Yesterday's announcement is the culmination of a 10-year, $10 million witch hunt. It was a serious and regrettable day. I have been charged with corruption related to my highly public 20-plus year contractual relationship with the Leahy Clinic and my legitimate fundraising activities on behalf of the Progressive Labor Party and the Bermuda Health Foundation. I am innocent. Nonetheless, some of you will understand how this day is ironically one of partial vindication. Surely, many had been led to believe that I stole millions of dollars, took kickbacks, and misused the public purse in various and sundry ways. I am not happy to be charged with anything because I know, and God knows, that I do not deserve to be charged with anything. But after 10 plus 10, I find it sort of redemptive that even my enemies charge me with has to do with the legal conduct of my business affairs and raising money for my beloved Progressive Labor Party and the Bermuda Health Foundation, which is a family charity for the education of Bermudian students in health fields. I am neither surprised nor intimidated by these specious charges. I know, and many others know, that my true crime is that I stood up to colonialism and did not seek permission to allow the Uyghurs into Bermuda. In the words of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., there comes a time when one must take a position that is neither safe nor politic nor popular, but he must take it because his conscience tells him it is right. The objective of my enemies is to emasculate me and ruin me financially and to show young black men and women that to resist colonialism and to combat white supremacy are dangerous exercises with severe consequences. Yes, they are, without a doubt. But Dr. King also taught us the ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. I choose to stand and fight. For the podcast links and more, visit my website, JanusAdams.com. Hashtag staying home for COVID-19. I'm Janice Adams in cooperation with WJFF Radio Catskill post-production Jason Dole. This show is a production of Janice Adams, LLC, all rights reserved. Trying to make it real compared to what...